One of the things that I hear most from people as I pray with people, talk with people, not only inside the church, but outside the church, is I'm sick of how hostile and angry everybody is. I had uh, some uh, months ago, I had a, a lady come into my office and she was in tears because uh, somebody had flipped her off on the freeway. And it, was, it wasn't that that is such a horrible thing to have, though it is a horrible thing to, to have happen, but it, it wasn't like she was surprised at it or shocked by it. It's just, it was the last straw. Another expression of vulgarity, hostility, anger. And it, it was just more than she could take in that moment. I was talking to someone uh, recently, uh, uh, visiting a couple and we talked about the fact that uh, so often people today are just walking around in kind of a defensive crouch not wanting to set anybody off and not wanting anybody to set them off and we are under a burden of fear of the hostility of people around us and uh, it's it seems to be growing it's it seems to become now a permanent part of the life of our nation. And uh, that is disturbing to all of us. Uh, you, you'll see a comment every now and again from somebody on Facebook where they, they put it against a, a red background, let's say, and they just say, I'm tired of this. I'm taking a Facebook vacation because I'm sick of the animosity and the arguing and the back and forth. Uh, we are going to take some time in these next weeks to address this. And in particular, we're going to address the disillusionment that we are all feeling with so many different facets of our society. There's a sense today that you can't believe anything you hear anywhere. There's a sense that you can't believe what the government says, you can't believe what politicians say. Oh, well, I mean, we've known that for a long time, but. But this is becoming something where the issues of our life are so important. Issues of war and peace. Issues of health insurance. Issues of disasters like we've just been praying about and talking about all around the country. We need to have that sense that we can believe what our leaders say. We can't believe what the media says. We can't believe what celebrities say about themselves or about their projects or any of these kinds of things, there is this growing sense of disillusionment with pretty much every institution in our society, whether it's education, politics, law, or the church. We are facing a disastrous loss of credibility as evangelical Christians in the United States. This disastrous loss of credibility expresses itself in many ways as people wonder, is the church even a place where you can go and trust what you're being told? Is the, is, is the church uh, just another place where you're going to encounter some kind of hostility, either 
ideologically from people who don't agree with you about politics or culture or entertainment or whatever, or against you personally, that as you work through the issues in your life, you wonder whether you're going to have patience and grace expressed to you, whether people are going to walk with you through those things, or whether you're going to become the focus of some rant or hostility from somebody that you should be living differently. And that uh, there's, there's this question in people's minds, can I trust church? Can I trust pastors? Can I trust Christians? And the answer in most of our society is no, I can't. And as we've been saying for some weeks, it's time for us to stop saying to ourselves and to the world, well, we're not really that bad. It's not really as bad as you're making it out to be. We're really very nice. We're really truthful. We're really good people and you can trust. There's, there's a sense in which we need to stop repeating these things to ourselves and simply say, we have a problem as Christians in this country. Time to face it. It's time to face that uh, many people have the question, is there any place that I can go? Anywhere that I won't encounter hostility. And we need to face the fact that for many people, they are at least afraid, if not convinced by long experience, that they will encounter hostility at church and they can't go. If you're here this morning checking us out, I am just relieved, even amazed, that you would take the step to come and trust us this morning. I want to honor and respect that. Uh, because the reality is that churches have become a danger zone in many different ways. And... Uh, so we are going to spend some time to face up to this and understand it and really confront the loss of hope, the disillusionment in our society that leaves us wondering, is there ever going to be a place where I can flourish again? Am I ever going to be able to grow as a person with other people? Will I ever be able to trust people again? And there's a whole other level to this that may be in your heart this morning, Will I ever be able to trust God again? Because I thought I was growing in knowing God, in knowing Jesus at a previous time in my life, but the betrayal of people around me left me broken and bloody, and I wonder where was he in the middle of that? Where was he when people were gossiping about me in church? Where was God when I was abandoned by the people who should have come around me during my tough time? And so these questions that we're asking go very deep. They go right to the heart of the nature of faith, the nature of our love and bond with each other. And so we don't know what else to do here at Grace Brethren, but just tackle them. Let's face them. 
Because one of the things we have found as a congregation is we, many of us, are coming from this same feeling of disillusionment. And we have found together that there is a future, there is a hope. The power of God is ministering to us and strengthening us in ways maybe we didn't expect. And so we want to share that with you. We want to partner with you wherever you're coming from this morning, wherever you're listening, maybe not here in the room, but listening uh, to a recording um, on an iPod or some other device, wherever you are, we want to partner with you to work through the disillusionment that we all share and come out the other side. Come out to a place where our hope has been stripped of all the fantasies and all the gimmicks and has become real and powerful. Let's talk about strength this morning. We're going to dive into one of the most um, convoluted books in the New Testament, the book of 2 Corinthians. It's a book about trouble, about relational trouble in the church. So we're going to, uh, this morning, take some time to introduce this book to you, and uh, over the next seven weeks, we're going to go through chapter 3 in detail. We're going to dive into the hope that Paul holds out to us in Jesus Christ, and we're going to nourish it. We're going to water it. We're going to, to seek strength from it so that we can flourish as people and come out the other side of our disillusionment, knowing God better and lo loving Him more deeply and loving one another more deeply. So that's the agenda for the next several weeks. What we're going to do this morning, as I said, is introduce the situation in 2 Corinthians, and we're going to see the strength that Paul finds in the situation that he faced in the first century, the first generation of Christians, as he wrote this letter. Where did he get strength? And then we're going to talk about the next seven weeks. How can we water, nourish, strengthen our hope? for our life together, our hope in Christ, our love for each other. How can we feed that? And uh, so we'll give an overview of what we're going to talk about the rest of this series. Let's dive in and talk about the troubled Corinthian church. Everybody thinks, if we could only get back to the way it was in the first century, the first generation of Christians, they were living as it were, in the Garden of Eden. Everything was fresh and new, and it was all working beautifully. And uh, if we could just get back to that, if we can somehow strip away all of our institutions and culture and buildings and programs and just get back to the simple stuff that they had, everything would be great. And this is a dream that uh, Christians have cherished. Every single generation says the same thing. Let's get back to the book of Acts, the first century, back to the New Testament church. Well, okay, if you want that. Here's the problem. Disillusionment goes right back to the beginning. Trouble, difficulty in church as an institution 
the problem of churches hurting people and the problem of what to do about that and how to flourish in the middle of that, that goes all the way back to the first century, the first generation of believers. It's there in the Corinthian church, and this is the situation that Paul faces as he writes this letter. We call it 2 Corinthians because it is the second letter to this church that we have. Paul founded this, this church, um, or was a founder of this church, and uh, the church quickly got into difficulty, and so he went back and paid what he calls a painful visit to this church, a, a visit where he had to confront many things that were going on and give corrections to those things. That visit was extremely painful, and then he had to follow that visit up with a, another letter, a letter reiterating, apparently, the things that he said during that visit and reiterating the confrontations that he had made. And this is a letter we do not have. Second Corinthians is, is probably third Corinthians or maybe even fourth Corinthians. We just don't have two and three. Our 2 Corinthians is a letter that he writes to this church in the middle of this difficulty. And I want us to look at the, the depth of the problems here and realize that what we're facing in our lives in churches is no different from what the church has always faced from the very beginning. Look with me at the amount of conflict in the Corinthian church. Look at chapter 1, verse 23. Paul says, But I call God to witness against me. You realize what he's doing there? He's taking an oath. Why do we have to take oaths? Because we want to certify that what we are saying is true. Paul takes an oath here because he knows that there are people in the Corinthian church deeply disillusioned with him and wondering whether he tells the truth, whether he can be trusted. He takes an oath here, I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. I wrote to you out of much if affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Deep conflict, many issues that he has to address with this church. He addressed it in a painful visit. It left unresolved. He followed it up with another painful letter and that too was unresolved. And basically what he's saying here is, I resolved in my heart 
I'm not going to come and make another painful visit to you. I'm not going to impose that pain on you. I don't want to write to you that way again. I'm going to take a step back, and I'm going to give you the space to deal with this problem without feeling pressure from me, nagging or hectoring or some kind of authoritative um, burden from me. So this is the, the frame of mind he's in as he's writing this letter. I just want you to notice a couple of things about this. Number one, if you have experienced conflict in a church, you need to understand that that's the nature of this beast, if I can put it that way. The nature of the church is that sinners come together seeking a savior and then seek to live together and minister together and work together to expand the kingdom of God, that involves conflict. It involves difficulty and it's frequently painful. And what you're seeing here is Paul saying, there's a point where I don't want to be the cause of any more pain. I'm going to take a step back and I'm going to trust the Holy Spirit of God in you to resolve these issues in the right way. And I, I read these words to you from Paul just so you get a sense of how deeply broken he is himself about this. Have you ever felt this way? Where there's a relationship that is just not going the way it should and you just don't want to have the same old conversation again. You don't want to go in there and have the same argument, say the same things, end up at the same place. That's where Paul is in this visit. So this is a very deep conflict in the midst of uh, a leader trying to move this church forward and this church, the Corinthian church, being disillusioned with him personally. Now, uh, let me give you a sense of how deep this conflict was. This wasn't about the color of the carpet in the Corinthian church. This wasn't about the songs that they sang at, uh, during the, the singing time. This wasn't about personalities. This was about abuse, very serious abuse. And Paul, in his first visit and in his first letters to them, had to name these abuses and call it out and say, listen, you need to deal with this. You can't let this go on. So specifically, what had happened, one of the things that had happened was a man in the congregation was committing adultery with his stepmother, committing adultery against his father with his stepmother. And you say, that doesn't sound quite right. That sounds pretty twisted around. And Paul is saying, yeah, it's, that's twisted. That is not the kind of sexual relationship that you can have in the church of God. And so this man is doing this. He's not repenting of it. And what is the church doing? What is the church doing to acknowledge that this is going on, to bring a corrective to the issue, and to prevent people 
from getting a wrong understanding of marriage and sexuality in the midst of this sin. What are they doing? Nothing. The Corinthians, watching all of this happen, watching lawsuits break out, they're meeting on Sunday morning and not acknowledging the issue. They're just letting it go on. Does this sound like a church you know? You ever seen this? People have an amazing capacity to refuse to acknowledge what is happening right in front of them. And so one of Paul's jobs is to say, church, you cannot just sit there on Sunday morning and say, we're good, everything's good when this is going on because this is not good. This is not right. So Paul is the guy who has to name those sins and say, look, here's what's happening. We all know this is happening. You need to do something about this. You need to express to this man that his job right now is to turn from what he's doing, stop abusing his relationship with his father, stop abusing his relationship with his stepmother, stop abusing the purity of the church, turn from his sin, and get back on the path with Christ. Church, you need to make that clear to him. Well, uh, one of the, the things about the Corinthians is they followed those directions. But I want you to look at chapter 2, just after I left off in verse 4, pick it up at verse 5, you'll realize that the conflict has now swung to the other direction. This man, who was resisting the church's pleas before, or at least some of the church's pleas to stop his behavior, who was in an unrepentant condition, this man listened now and turned from his sin. He was grieved by what he had done. He realized it, and now he finds the church won't receive him back. So now Paul has the opposite problem. At first, they wouldn't do anything about it. Then they swung to the other extreme, and now they're doing too much. They're making their hostility too hot for him at this point, and it's harming him. And so now you've got a two-way street of abuse here. Have you ever seen this? Where a group of people all of a sudden react to something that is going on and they react too harshly and they can't rein it in. And they wind up doing even more damage than the damage of not acknowledging an abuse or a problem or a sin in the first place. So here's what Paul says to them beginning in chapter 2, verse 5. Now, if anyone has caused pain... He has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. Now he's talking about this, this man who was committing adultery. For such a one who has offended all of you, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. You can push someone too far and, and say, you can never come back from this. This shame will hang over you. you a, a group of people can do that to an individual and make that person bear a label for the rest of their lives in a church and never peel that label off. And Paul is saying, enough. 
Mission accomplished. He's brought to his senses. Now, give him comfort. Encourage him. Build him up. Don't let him be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Look at how he puts this, verse 8. So, I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. What I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ so that we would not be outwitted by who? Satan. For we are not ignorant of his designs. It's an amazingly revealing little paragraph here. Paul saying, yeah, there was abuse coming from one direction in your church, but now you're in danger of abuse going too much the other way. What do we have here? We have a bunch of new Christians in a brand new church trying to learn how this works, and they're not doing very well. And there's a tremendous amount of hurt going on as some throw off the expectations of purity and right behavior, and others react too, in too great an extreme to those, those kinds of things and won't receive people back when they are genuinely and sincerely repentant. Um, I would say that uh, the, this paragraph sums up the, the twin problems that I see in churches in our country today. One is a refusal to acknowledge wrong and abuse while it is happening. We're just going to look the other way. We're not going to take the side of the oppressed. We're not going to take the side of the victim. We're just going to forgive and hope this goes away. I've said this to you in the past. Uh, it bears repeating. The pressure to look the other way as a pastor from the congregation, the pressure is intense. Don't do anything. Don't tell anybody. Don't out this. Because we've got to be forgiving to the perpetrator. Well, we do have to be forgiving to the perpetrator, but there are victims. There are oppressed people under the thumb of abusers, we don't have the right to ignore those people to make ourselves feel forgiving, comfortable, and open. Very often, um, what I have heard from people who have dropped out of church and said, I've had enough, is uh, that they are very frequently that victim where their cause was not upheld and they couldn't get a hearing, they couldn't get simple honesty about what was happening in their family or what had happened to them by a leader of the church, whatever it may be. So these kinds of situations are real. This, this thing of looking the other way and pretending that something is not happening. But the other problem is just as bad. We'll choose some very public kind of sin and we will heap scorn and shame on that one to the exclusion of all of the secret ones that everybody's guilty of. 
any church that continues on that path is going to find themselves being made a tool of another kind of design. And it's not God's design. It's literally the satanic design of our enemy. Get us reacting out of self-righteousness and fear. when We should be reacting, not reacting at all, but responding to wrongs, abuses, and sins with clarity, truth, and love. We can do that. And Paul is teaching this church to do that, but it's very difficult. Now, you take that, that's one abuse that was going on in the Corinthian church. Multiply it by 10, and you have the actual situation in Corinth. Because believe it or not, it's worse. We won't go into all of that. But there are so many issues of abuse by the, the proud against the weak, or by... Um, the, the, uh, those who see themselves as insiders against those who they are trying to make outsiders. All of these kinds of abuses are going on in this church and Paul is correcting all of these things in these letters. You can see why he is torn up about this and you can see why he is emotionally in pain as he writes this letter. There's more. And that is that in the process of doing all of this, Paul himself has come under accusation. It's like this, and this always happens. If you're the person who names an abuse, what immediately happens to you? Well, you're the abuser. You're the one who's making everybody hurt here. And this happened to Paul. He is accused of uh, lording it over them. That's why he says after he takes that vow, uh, yes, I refrained from coming to you because I, I wanted to spare you this pain. And by the way, I'm not lording it over you. I don't mean that. He has to speak this way because he's talking to a group of people who are disillusioned with him. Uh, there are accusations that he cannot be trusted. He's vacillating. Look at 117. Was I vacillating when I wanted to come to you? He's, he had made a plan to uh, journey into Corinth and to see them again, and he changed his plan. Uh, was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? He's being accused of talking out of both sides of his mouth. Um, he is being accused of many, many other things. Um, he is, uh, to many of the Corinthians, Corinth kind of the, the equivalent of Seattle today. It's a trading center. It's a, it's a hip place. Everybody kind of wants to live there. Uh, and so if, if you live in Corinth, you're cool just by virtue of being within the city limits and having an apartment there. And so the cool Corinthians are very condescending toward Paul. He's not slick enough. He's not compelling enough. He's not inspiring enough. So all of these accusations are coming out, and um, that is further comp uh, uh, complicating this situation. So, having said all of this, 
What we're looking at here in 2 Corinthians is what we have experienced. Accusations, slander, personality conflicts, attempts to bring out and name wrongs that have been committed only to be uh, met with an overkill on the other side. Uh, All of these things were there in the church from the very beginning. Question. Where's the power of God in this? Pastor, if you're saying that all of these problems that have disillusioned us, that all of these problems were there way back in the first century, why hasn't anybody done anything about it? Why haven't we learned? Why hasn't God exerted His power to make the church what it ought to be? Why hasn't he done this? Where's the power of God in all of this? Pastor, you're actually giving me reasons to ditch the church entirely because you're basically saying that for 2,000 years the church has been a basket case. Paul answers that question. He tells us the source of his strength. He tells us the source of his hope. He tells us what the power of God is in these situations. Look at chapter 1, verse 19. God has made promises to us. Let's think through some of those promises. From the very beginning of the scriptures, God is promising to save us from our sins. God is promising to pay for our sins, cleanse us from sin. He is promising to fill us with His Holy Spirit to teach us how to live differently. All of God's promises have been made over thousands of years. They're they're recorded in the Scriptures. Here's what Paul says in chapter 1, verse 19. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus, Timothy, and I, that's His his team. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, was not yes and no, but in Him it is always yes. Jesus does not talk out of both sides of His mouth. Jesus fulfills all the promises of God. He goes on to say this, verse 20, For all the promises of God find their yes In Him. That is why it is through Him that we utter our Amen to God for His glory. The word Amen, we use it a lot. Kind of a stereotypical thing for a Christian to say. You know what it means? It just means true. What you're saying is true. Amen. So when Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, he's saying, amen, amen, I say to you. What I'm saying to you is right, straight, it is true, it is accurate, and it is deeply um, coherent with who God is and what he has promised. So what Paul is saying here is, in Jesus Christ, we say to God, 
Every promise you have made is true. Everything you say is true. And in Christ, it is all yes. There is no no in Jesus Christ. Why? It's very simple. Jesus died to pay for yes. All the bills, all the indebtedness of sin that leads to God saying no, Jesus paid all of those. So the sins of the man who committed adultery with his stepmother and then turned, are those sins still held by God against that man where God is saying to him, Yes, you're sort of in, but no, you're not really in because you did this bad thing. No. The sins are gone. Yes is bought and paid for by Jesus Christ with his blood. The sins of all of the other Corinthians against each other, all of their abuses in pride and their, their kind of puffed up, inflated view of themselves, all of those sins is God saying, eh, yes. I'll overlook them, but no, not really. I'll still, I'll forgive you, but I'm also going to hold them against you. Yes and no? No. In Christ, all of those sins are paid. So in that two-way street of abuse, where you've got one man abusing the confidence and purity of the church, and then you have the church responding with overkill and abusing the man, even though he's repented. The cross of Jesus Christ answers both of those sins and says, forgiven, yes. Now kneel at the foot of the cross on an equal plane before Jesus Christ. Receive his grace, receive his mercy, receive healing from him, and then we can grow. This is what Paul is saying here in chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. In verse 21, he adds, It is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us. Who did this? Paul is saying, I didn't do this through brilliance or charisma or talent or scholarship, or force of will. I didn't establish myself with you. God established us together. Think about this. This is a man in pain toward the Corinthian church because he has been wronged by many in that church. And he's still saying, we are established together in Christ, and God did it. More specifically, he says, verse 22, God has anointed us and God has also put his seal on us. The down payment. A down payment secures the purchase. Once you put a down payment on something, a car or a house, big item, that item is secured. It is yours until such time as you claim it. It's being kept for you. And uh, so what we have right here is 
Paul saying, we have that down payment. He calls it here a guarantee. What is a guarantee? It is a promise saying this will not fail. You can take this to the bank. You can depend on this. So if we take apart what Paul is saying here, he is saying, in Christ, all the promises of God are fulfilled, and we have been brought to the place, you and I, you Corinthians with me, Paul, we have been brought to a place where we have the seal of God upon us together. Even though we're hurting, even though we're disillusioned, even though we're in conflict, we have that seal upon us, and God has given us his Holy Spirit as a guarantee, a down payment, that the kingdom is ours. We are simply waiting for it to be delivered. Where does Paul see the power of God? He sees the power of God in the process of the church learning the Holy Spirit. Do you see this? Let me say it again. Where is the power of God for Paul? Where is the power of God for the Corinthians? How are we strengthened? Paul says the power of God is in the process of the church learning the Holy Spirit. That's powerful. That means that there is nothing that we can go through together that is so difficult that it will not be redeemed and woven into the process of our learning and growing every single day by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we are guaranteed this. We are sealed with this. It's the mark of God upon the church. Wait a minute, Pastor I'm always told that the Holy Spirit of God is to, supposed to lead me to solutions to my problems. And the Holy Spirit is the one who's supposed to solve all of these issues. And he's supposed to, to work all of these miracles in my life so that I'm happy and wealthy and wise and all of these things. But you're saying that the signature of the Holy Spirit is in pain and difficulty and suffering, and process. Pastor, I don't want process. I want answers. And every time I've gone to church, the church says the same thing. God has all the answers for you. And you seem to be taking that back. I'm not taking it back at all. The answers are in the process. If you want a Holy Spirit who is a genie in a bottle, who responds on command, and you can learn the magic words and make the Holy Spirit heal you, restore your relationships, make the Holy Spirit do your bidding. If you want that, you're following fairy tales and fantasies, not the God of the Bible. If you have been taught that, and I know you have, I know you have. If you've been taught that, 
you need to understand that that is part of the abuse of the gospel by the church as we get lazy, pragmatic, and simplistic in our approach to people's pain. And I am sorry, because that does damage to people. And it's done damage to many of you. And um, this is done by people who are, here's, here's really the worst of it, these people aren't Hitler. They're not malicious most of the time. They're just trying to live the Christian life and they're giving you what worked for them. And they're trying to make it simple and they're trying to make it workable in your life. But gimmicks are gimmicks. That's just the way it is. They don't work. There's no substitute for the real Holy Spirit. What we're saying here is that we have hope and it's not a false hope and it's not a fantasy hope and it's not a gimmicky hope. It's the hope that the Holy Spirit is in the process. If you're here this morning beaten up and bleeding because of something that has happened to you inside the church or outside of it and you're wondering, is there any future for this? We're here to say there is because we've experienced it and it is in the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, let me pause right now and see what, uh, I've got some questions here. Does Christ pay for the sins of the unrepentant? Um, yes. I hope that doesn't scandalize you. Maybe it does scandalize you and that's good for you. I don't know. Jesus pays for the sins of the unrepentant because he's paying for mine. And I haven't repented of all of them. Sorry, but it's just the reality of it. <laughs> I, don't even, I don't even know them all. If I knew them, I might be able to do something about it. But I'm looking from this direction, from inside my head, out. So what's going on back behind my mind, deep down in my heart, I don't know. What I do know scares me. The Holy Spirit has me in a process of repenting. So here's what I would say in answer to that question. Jesus has paid for the process. He has, a, he has bought for us the freedom to change. So, now, if we say, well, I don't believe in Jesus, but, you know, if he really did this, then he's in my corner no matter what. Sorry, we've got other things to talk about if that's the issue. But this question is coming more from, what if my repentance isn't good enough? Paid. The answer is yes. It is not yes and no. Good question. Um, so we're talking about a difference between calling out someone and condemning someone. 
also um, restoration versus cutting off. Yes, we are talking about those things. So there's a difference between saying, listen, brother, sister, what you're doing is abusive and destructive to the people around you. You need to find a better way. That is not condemnation. That's truth. Love comes in by saying, we're with you. So restoration is, there's got to be a change here. But no matter how long it takes, no matter how tearful and sweaty we get in this work, we're with you and we're not going to abandon you. Um, so there, there is a, a, an important difference that we're observing there. I want to give you an overview of where we're headed. Um, 500 years ago, something called the Protestant Reformation happened. 500 years ago. We're going to celebrate this in October. In the Protestant Reformation, we realized that our sins were forgiven and the church had nothing to say about it. It was Christ alone forgave us our sins. That's a powerful, amazing, necessary realization. We're 500 years later, and we're right back in the same place. Where churches have lost credibility with... Um, uh, the society around us and we're at the same exact place of needing to realize some new things about who God is and what he has done and those realizations I believe need to take the form of a new reformation the computer seems to be talking to us here sorry about that um, I think it's that bad I think it's that serious that we are at another epic-making point in the history of the church, in the Western world, and in the United States in particular, that either we get some things right or there is darkness ahead of us. Three things that we need to learn about the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit is the source of our life. Here are some of the things we're going to see in chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians. The Spirit of the living God is writing on our hearts, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. That's life. We're being changed. Verse 6. The letter of the law kills but the Spirit gives life. We need to recover this doctrine. We need to understand that the Holy Spirit is the source of our life together. And that hope that we as a community gathering in the power of the Holy Spirit can see the power of God, that's going to strengthen us and bring us to the other side of disillusionment. Secondly, we're going to see that the Holy Spirit is the source of our freedom. We do not need to manipulate through guilt or fear 
in order to try to bring righteousness to people's lives. The Bible itself tells us that will not work. The wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. We need to recover the confidence in the Holy Spirit to do what Paul did, step back from each other, and after we have spoken the truth to each other, say, it is not my job to impose pain on you. You have decisions to make, and so I'm going to step back and let you make those decisions. We need to trust the Spirit of God that he's in that process. The ministry of condemnation has died and it has been replaced, chapter 3 says, by the ministry, the glorious ministry of the life of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit look at what he says um, in verse 17 of chapter 3. Now the Lord is the Spirit and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is what? Freedom. That means not being under oppressive control, either the oppressive control of sin or the oppressive control of hypocritical human beings trying to snuff out sin. Freedom. We need this. The Spirit is the source of our transformation. We are being transformed, verse 18, as we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image of God from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Do you believe that? We need to understand this more deeply. We need to understand that the Holy Spirit of God is not given to us as individuals simply so that we can enjoy him ourselves. The Spirit of God is his seal set upon the entire church. Are you weak today? Are you mourning today? Are you beaten up and bloody today? I understand the temptation to walk away and seek healing on your own with the Spirit of God. I get that. There are days when that's what I want. But the thing that I have found is when we come back into community and we submit to the Holy Spirit of God in the community, we find healing and we find transformation. Don't bail on the Holy Spirit of God by walking away from the people he has sealed. He has not bailed on us. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, there are things that each one of us bring into this room that uh, burden us, grieve us, maybe gaping emotional or even physical wounds that all need to be addressed. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would address those needs and reach into us and give us the ability to trust you and to trust one another. We ask that you would do this healing work, this freeing work, this transforming work, and we will give you all the glory. 
Help us nourish this hope and find this strength, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.